welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Mike. And we're here to talk about West Side Story, starring Ansel Elgort, Ariana DeBose, David Alvarez, Mike Faced, Rita Moreno, and introducing Rachel Zegler. Based on the Broadway classic by author Lawrence Leonard Bernstein, Stephen Sondheim, and Jerome Robbins with the update. Directed by Steven Spielberg. Mike, first off, welcome back to Filmstrip. Welcome to 2022 with us here. Uh, do tell folks about all the cool stuff you've got going on on your podcast, Amateur Artours. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Um, I've you know I've been a, a guest on uh, your show before, and as a I guess a sneak back, this is also going to be recorded for my show as well. It's going to be really exciting. But you know, all the listeners, I'm, I'm sure there hasn't been anyone that hasn't heard this name yet. But just in case, uh, yeah, Amateur Tours. It's it's mostly a podcast with me and my brother when we can find the time. Um, but we're just two dudes that love movies, talk about anything that we want. There is no theme. There's no you know. There's I mean, there's sort of a schedule, but even after tonight, I was like, well, we're going to put this around. We're going to change this around. So we just literally talk about whatever we want. Um, we talk about musicals, talk about uh, dramas. We talk about old movies, talk about new movies. We do a little bit of D&D in, in there as well. So got a mix of everything for everyone. So, uh, but yep, yeah, that's us. We can, you can find us on iTunes, uh, I think SoundCloud. And as of right now, that's all I know of off the top of my head. But hopefully we can change that in 2022. Uh, absolutely. Glad to have you back again. Always fun to be on your show as well. And, uh, you know, we we uh, had a real fun one there to, to talk about stuff we were getting ready for for the, the first of the year here. So glad to have you help us kick off the beginning of 2022, her, her own film strip, because, uh, yeah, West Side Story, you and I, Mike, have been talking about this one coming out for a while since uh, I think since we did like La La Land back in yeah. you know, 2021 at some point. And and then I, I drug you in here to do Ready Player One. And we we're like, so Spielberg's next movie is this. So we got it. We got to come around to it um, on this one. But I'm, what I'm curious about is um, I want to hear more of your background on West Side Story. But first, I'm going to turn to the person that is really the expert of this thing on the show. And it's why <laughs> Lindsay is here, because as we've talked about before, Lindsay has actual like stage credits and knows acting and knows all this stuff and knows West Side Story pretty well, too. So I want to hear your background on West Side Story, Lens, and also what you knew about this movie coming out before it happened. Uh, well, gosh, where do I start? So I guess in high school was the first time I was really fully exposed to West Side Story and the music from it. We did a lot of music from it when I was in uh, high school choir, actually. So oh. we had a whole like Broadway show type of thing and we weren't a show choir, but that's what we did. So I became familiar with a lot of the music at that point. Um, I'd seen the original West Side Story movie. Uh, it feels like a million years ago now, um, but you know, we we got through that. And going into this one, I mean, I've always been a fan of the show, especially as a fan of Shakespearean theater as well, and remakes and remake movies of Shakespeare. Comedies and tragedies will go with Othello, Midsummer Night's Dream. I've seen all of them. I like all of them. My cat's name is Puck. Like, so I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm down 
with all things Shakespeare. So West Side Story being inspired by the great Romeo and Juliet, of course, I delved deep into that. So going into seeing this film, the only thing I had done was I watched the trailer and I read on Thursday. So I saw this uh, the Friday that it came out. So it had only been out for a day. But that Thursday, I read a review of it, I think on NPR, and got really excited, got a few tidbits about that. So going into it, I was pretty pumped about it, but I didn't know a lot about the actors who were in it. So I stayed as open-minded as I could. Very cool. Mike, what about you, your background with West Side Story? Oh, yeah, I absolutely love West Side Story. Um, As I'm sitting in my apartment, I have, you guys can kind of see in the video behind me, I have movie posters all throughout uh, my wall and stuff that really means to me. I, I have, uh, well, behind me, I have Dawn of the Dead, uh, One Flew Cuckoo's Nest 2001. Those are like one of my favorite movies, but I also have like icons. I have Stanley Kubrick, I have Rocky, Johnny Cash, but also in the middle of all of this, I have a frame of the original West Side Story of them dancing down the street. So I absolutely love this musical. It's my fifth favorite movie, my favorite musical. So I actually had seen West Side Story through Fathom Events on the big screen uh, in 2019. I was in nursing school, and it was like my fir- end of my first semester. I had a final, but my last final, the day before they were showing this. And as the responsible student, I took my mom and saw West Side Story instead. <laughs> and it was awesome. Like, I can't recommend Fathom Events enough. Um, they actually did another screening. I guess in anticipation of this movie, I unfortunately couldn't see it. I got my booster, uh, my COVID booster shot. I was feeling a little under the weather and then I had work. So I was like, I'll drat, but at least I had already seen it um, on the big screen. So I love West Side Story. And then hearing of that, uh, (laughs) that Spielberg was remaking this movie. uh, I've said it on film strip a lot that I just was not really that excited going into this movie. Um, I've already said my piece on Spielberg. Uh, I don't want to retread on a, uh, and just like get angry again. But um, yeah, I just, I definitely feel like he's like an old man yelling at the sky on a lot of issues. Uh, you can listen to the Ready Player One if you want to hear more of like a thorough, um, I guess, dissing that I do on Spielberg. That's not saying he's not a talented director. I'm not saying that at all. But it's more as modern pieces are like are frustrating at at best i think and just kind of like a letdown because he can do a lot more he just chooses not to i guess a little prelude going into this movie but um so yeah i at the time of this recording i you guys are going to get the fresh i'm saying all fair I, I you i have the freshest take i walked out of the movie theater one hour ago um and i called brian my twin brother where we talked about it a little bit um literally maybe like five minutes before we started recording so i have some jumbled notes. I have my notes from my phone when I was recording. I was one of three people in the movie theater, so I don't think anyone was bothered that I was making notes in the theater. But yeah, so long, long story short, I love West Side Story. Wasn't huge going into the movie. And uh, and actually, Lindsay, I think my, my, set, my rating is set, but whether I recommend this movie is going to be based off of the conversation with you. Because I think you can offer some insight that uh, might sway me one way or another. All right, okay. No pressure. I know. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Lid, you got to show everybody. Those who you might not be, uh, you know, seeing the video of this, your notes are all on your order tickets from the Alamo Draft House. <laughs> yeah. You saw this in, right? Yeah. So anyone oh, wow. who might be listening, um, I went to see this movie at the Alamo Draft House. It is one of those theaters where you can order food and drinks while you're <laughs> watching the movie. Well, I came and I I went to a showing that had very few people in it. And I was ready to, you know, write all my notes down. And it's one of, because you're placing orders while you're watching the movie, they have like these little lights. So I was like, no, it's perfect. I'll be able to have a light to write my notes with. It's already built in there. Well, I forgot my notebook. So I wrote all of my notes on <laughs> the Alamo Draft House <laughs> order cards. <laughs> perfect. So yeah, they're all right here. That is Dedication. That is Dedication. Yep. That yeah, that is that is perfect. So well, I got to tell my background on West Side Story. So you can all think Kevin Anderson and Julia Roberts for me knowing anything about what West Side Story was, knowing it was a thing at all. I somehow missed this as a teenager, getting into musicals, things like that. I don't know how, but somehow or another, all of that just I, I just missed it. But I saw Sleeping with the Enemy. And there's a great scene where Julia Roberts, spoiler alert for this movie, is looking out her new window after she's run away from Patrick Bergen. And Kevin Anderson is in his backyard at his next door house singing the Jets song while he's watering his garden. <laughs> and I just thought, what is what is that song? Because I would walk around humming it. You know, once you're a Jet, you know, it just sticks in your head. And I was like, what is that? So I finally looked it up one day back before there was a Google. I had to go and like research this. somehow. I think I asked the theater teacher in high school, like, what is this song that goes like this? And she just laughed at me. She said, what's that story? How do you not know that? So I went and checked the LP out of the library. This is also how old I am. And I listened to it and I was like, oh my gosh. And I just, you know, I loved it. I watched the movie. I think I rented it on VHS or, or DVD or whatever. And, uh, you know, much to like my parents and, and uh, particularly my mother and grandmother's surprise that I didn't know what that was. They're like, how did, how did you like come along this far? And we didn't show you. This. <laughs> so I, that's how West Side Story became part of my life was the sleeping with the enemy and Julia Roberts and Kevin Anderson. Um, so, and that's uh, the weirdest segue I can get into this. So, I knew that this was happening, though, four or five years ago because Steven Spielberg talked about it. And he will talk about that it took that long to kind of get it all together. And we'll get to Tony Kushner in a minute who who wrote this adaptation of this script because, I Lindsay, you got thoughts on him. Um, but I knew this was coming at some point. And then when he announced after Ready Player One, like, yeah, I'm doing this you know, next. I was like, OK, I'm, you know, Spielberg doing a musical. And then I, I heard something in the pre-production that I can't say didn't color my thought going into this movie a little bit and it's on the end credit too. I mean, it's boom, it's right there that Spielberg was doing this because this was his dad's favorite musical growing up and it was it so it became his growing up and he said you know if i'm going to do one of these i mean that was my it's almost like he's he's sort of like our friend kurt fabish now who just accepts challenges because he's done everything else you know so somebody said well you know you got to do a musical steven and he's like okay fine and if i'm going to do one i got to do my favorite one right and when you're steven spielberg and you've got that kind of clout and you've made that kind of money and you have that kind of oscar you know just you get them dropped on you like meryl streep does you know, at least nominations, I guess you get to do what you want to do. And yeah, here's a hundred million dollars from Disney. Go and make uh, your West Side Story movie. And so he set off to do this. So I knew that going in. And as far as like anybody else, like I, I know who Ansel Elcourt is from mostly from the Divergent movies I've seen him in and some of his DJ work, oddly enough. 
Um, I did miss the part where uh, like he had some uh, unfortunate news come out that may or may not be accurate, you know, whatever. Uh, but I didn't know anybody else in this until I saw Mike face in the screen. And I was like, Oh, it's the dear Evan Hansen guy. It's Evan friggin' Hansen. Um, and then his dad shows up as the, uh, the, uh, Krupke later, uh, from dear Evan Hansen, but I didn't know anybody else. Um, I Googled, uh, Rachel Zegler afterward and found out she was a YouTuber and promptly asked my 13 year old niece, do you know who this is? And she said, Oh yes, she's awesome. And I was like, well, that's all I need to know. And so I knew nothing about any of this going into it other than it's Spielberg doing West Side story. And I knew he said, you know, we're going to specifically cast Latino and Latina actors for those roles. And uh, we're going to we're, we're going to we're not going to change the period, but we're going to change a little twist on like why there's a turf war in New York. And I don't know, but I, I knew there wasn't going to be much else changed other than the choreography was going to be totally different than any of it. And I had seen a stage version of this kind of like a high school production before. And I, yeah, and Lynn just made a face at me and I'm like going, do they really change that much? I don't know. We'll have to talk about that. But Jerome Robbins declares that it's all new. And I'm like, but I've seen that dance before. I, I don't know. So we'll get into that as we go. But that's what I knew about this going in. And uh, you know, Mike, we had a real good discussion about Spielberg for about the first 40 minutes of the Ready Player One uh, episode <laughs> is that, um, which is cool. Um, and I I tend to be a little more forgiving of him because I am kind of in the bag for him. But I won't sit here and not tell you that his schmaltzy approach doesn't wear thin a little bit sometimes. And I, I can see a movie of his coming like I can see the poster. And I'm like, I know exactly like I haven't seen the Lincoln movie. I don't need to. I kind of know that story. I'm like, I know exactly what this like. There's no reason for me to ever watch that. I know exactly what it's going to be. Daniel Day Lewis in sepia tone trying to win yet another Oscar. And that's that's pretty much what that movie is from what I understand. Um, also, Lincoln gets shot. Spoiler alert. Um, so, I mean, I knew that I, I didn't need to know anything else. I was just curious to see how Spielberg would handle a musical and if they would try to do anything different with it. And we'll get into that in, in a bit, but I, I want to talk about Tony Kushner. Who's doing the screenplay adaptation this time, because I wasn't aware that that was happening either until I saw it. And Lindsay, you and I exchanged some texts about it. So you've got some thoughts on, on dear Tony, as it were. Well, I was, I was excited. I, Love Tony Kushner. I think he's a brilliant playwright. I think he's an excellent screenwriter. And it just so happens that he's one of Spielberg's favorite people to work with. So it makes sense that they would link up for this. And Tony Kushner being first and foremost a playwright, it he is an obvious mm -hmm. choice to help write the screen adaptation for West Side Story. But I have nothing but very deep respect for him just as mm -hmm. a writer in general. So that is one of the big reasons why I was so excited going into this movie. Yeah. And he did win the Academy Award for Munich and was nominated for Lincoln. And I'll, I'll sit here and tell you, Munich's a powerful film. It's not one you can watch just on rotation because it asks you to really feel a lot of harsh reality. But it's really well done. And the script makes it great. Yeah. And my first introduction to Tony Kushner was with his angels in America, which I think mm. is a lot of people's first, you know, first encounter with one of his, one of his pieces. But I think that's yeah. probably one of his biggest. So, well, maybe not his biggest, but that was definitely his launch pad. So for sure. And Spielberg's bringing back Janusz Kaminski, a longtime cinematography partner to shoot this. And so this is somebody that worked on BFG. He's worked on Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan. I mean, he's he's been a, a frequent collaborator of 
Spielberg. Um, John Williams, not part of this, uh, oddly enough. Uh, but you know, Spielberg's worked with other, other, uh, music directors from time to time. And, um, so I think they got the New York Philharmonic to do a lot of the music for this, which is, I mean, you can hear it and it, it's, it's a faithful adaptation of the, the original score. I would say, um, I'm a big fan of that score. Um, we just lost Steven Sondheim, you know, not that long ago. And so, um, this is, you know, something that kind of put him on the map lyricist wise, but this is definitely a Bernstein score and you can feel it throughout it. And, um, you know, as far as, and I don't want to do it too much of comparisons to the old movie, but as far as that goes, like that movie lives in a space that we don't make movies like that anymore. And we don't live in that time anymore. And I think that was my most curious question going into this is not only why I do this, but can, can you do this story and, and keep it in its period and anybody still care? Like the Romeo and Juliet story will live on forever. Clearly it's, it has, I mean, even friggin' twilight did it. So everybody's done it. I think Simpsons has, I don't know, nine or 12 episodes on it at this point. So it's always something. Uh, South Park's probably done some strange twist of it too. Now that I say that, but can, can you do the West side story story today and it still resonates spielberg will double down and say though it's even more resonant nowadays but i'm like only if you want it to be and i think that's one of the twists about west side story that has always surprised me is most of the time musicals even when they're dealing with dark subject matter Irina and i talked about this on the dear evan hansen review they kind of leave you with a lift at the end they want you to go up and spoiler alert for something that's almost 60 years old at this point um or even beyond that at this point this ends in a real dark place. <laughs> like it is not a happy ending. This this movie and this story isn't. Um, so I'm I'm curious as to I don't know how well you guys think it resonates still nowadays. Yeah, that, that, that's the thing. Like we mentioned, like why West Side Story? And I guess this might go into a little bit of a rant about Spielberg. Like so, like earlier, you uh, you were mentioning like Spielberg wants to challenge himself and. And I think that's like that's that's very noble to challenge yourself, but he does it with a a very established, well known story that is over sixty, almost seventy years old now, and it almost feels like okay, that's the blueprint, that's what we're working with, and like let's let's ebb our little pieces into this like story. And what's frustrating to me is like Spielberg can make something new, like he has that clout. Rightly so. It's not just like the name. Like he actually can. He is a talented filmmaker. He can make an original piece. He just chooses not to, and that's like the frustrating part to me. You know, here we're getting themes of like gentrification, and then you know, still continuing those themes of you know, poor white people. You know, poor minorities. They're fighting like they're fighting amongst each other. But it's like, are they really the enemy? Like they're just like, do they have anything to fight for except this like this block of this grid of New York City, and it just feels like it's been done and that's and, and one of the, the things that Brian and I were talking about in this conversation, well, the conversation post movie was I was the idea of challenging and I brought up the comparison of Paul Thomas Anderson and Spielberg. You know, hmm. Paul Thomas Anderson, you can watch all his his films from, you know, well, Heart Eight or even, you know, Coffee and Cigarettes, Magnolia to now, um, with uh, well Phantom Thread, but Licorice Pizza coming out, which I haven't seen at the time of this recording. But, you know, you can see a clear maturing of a filmmaker, someone that is, you know, going from his coke binge days of Magnolia to this like very slow, matured filmmaker with films like The Master, Phantom Thread. But they're all different. 
and he challenges himself, you know, something like the master and Phantom Thread, you know, character studies, but very different in their approach to subject matter. Um, yeah. And then, you know, even going far back with, you know, Hard Eight, Boogie Nights and Magnolia, like they're all like coke filled binges, but they all tackle different, different subject matters. And with Spielberg, I'm trying to look back and yeah, I'm just like, how, when was the last time you like truly challenged yourself? Like maybe Munich, but um, you know, Lincoln, that. like, Link, but that was over like 16 years ago. And, mm-hmm. and Lincoln, I think that, I think it works obviously for, for who he is as a filmmaker. Like he is an older man. He's just trying to tell this like slow story of some of like a really historical person. And like, it works in that context, but it is really long. Um, however, here, I'm like, if you, you want to tell a story of, you know, gentrification of, you know, minorities, oppressed people, it like, that's a story that can work. And he just doesn't, you know, there are, there are, especially in today's age where, um, with just everything going on, the, 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 um, the political movements that we have, there are writers that can write about this stuff. I've, I've met people just in like the Philadelphia area that are like, kind of like struggling bohemians, like Jonathan Larson types that, you know, have these stories that they tell because they live it. But mm-hmm. he, he chooses to retell a story that was told, I would say, like, arguably in the film context, like near perfectly in the late 50s, early 60s. So that's that's kind of me going in immediately after this, like kind of frustrated that, you know, did he challenge himself? I would say not really. But there are things I do appreciate that they were able to wiggle into this uh this this piece to make it like both contemporary but also like i don't say timeless but you know we can still talk about it i think it was probably less of a challenge for such an established director than it was just him paying homage to this musical that jay i think you mentioned was his father's favorite musical and he really wanted to dig in and kind of give it a facelift because yeah, the first movie was great, but it did not age well. No. <laughs> in, yeah, some in Puerto a Rican lot face, of ways. Yeah. yeah, there was a lot of brown face in that movie. And Let, let's say this though. I, I want to jump in just real quick on that though. I understand that, that that's a fair criticism of it, but let's be honest, the access to brown actors and Latino actors and things, it just wasn't there. Like even if they'd wanted to do it, they couldn't have done it back then so i'm not giving those people a pass for that i'm I'm not making excuses i'm just saying like i hear that but i I, they they weren't around like there wasn't a david alvarez to go get and do that you know and now now there are thank god but that's that's one thing you got to look at with those kind of criticisms is that they they couldn't have done any of that back then it just wasn't there right and that wasn't necessarily a criticism as much as just a statement of it hasn't aged well like yeah it's true you know you're not gonna you're not going to sit down with your family and watch that movie. How are you going to explain mm-hmm. <laughs> some True. of those makeup jobs to like a 10 year old, you know, yeah. my, my niece um, would not get that. Yeah. I right. Get right. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. I think, and I, I could tell throughout the movie that, or at least it felt like throughout the movie that both Spielberg and the choreographers, even though uh, you mentioned that choreography was going to be quote completely different, it wasn't <laughs> really. It wasn't really different. Um, but for me, it felt like okay, they were they were paying tribute. They were trying to stay as close to 
as close to the original as they could, but give it some kind of new life to make it more relatable and more engaging for a more current audience. One thing I know they did is they stuck a lot more closely, and Tony Kushner is really the credit for this, to the stage script. Mm-hmm. The 1960 yep. movie softens a lot of the stuff, particularly the sexual innuendo and some of the harsher language. They don't really curse as much, but you know what I mean? Like some of the 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 swear words and the racial swears and things like that. Those are the sixties movie sort of softens and glows that just like it does the makeup on people. The stage play doesn't do that. It goes there. And, and yeah, so they they leaned more into that this time, which I appreciated because I, again, I'm a fan of that, that musical and the, and the play part of it and everything like that. So I liked that. And I kind of noticed it as well. And that's what I was going to ask. Like I have never seen the stage production of West Side Story, just the film. So like I was looking at it from that perspective. So like, were there any, like what were the key differences? Uh, Cause I did appreciate how this film really stuck to kind of like the ugliness of racism and prejudice. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I did appreciate that. Although it did seem a little bit more like gloss down and like toned down. I did at least appreciate, you know, some of the, you know, the racial slurs they were throwing at each other just like really it's, easily. It's all in the stage script. Mm-hmm. It's all there. Okay. And and even like the jokes, like I think Anita at one time gets on Bernardo or one of the other uh, sharks or whatever and says, you're calling them a this and a that. You're, you know, a spick saying this to a cracker or whatever. Now you're truly American. You know, like that's a joke in the, in the mm-hmm. play and uh, the play part of the musical. And I appreciate they kept that kind of stuff in. So it's all there. Like the, the biggest difference I noticed in this, one it was they just reordered some of the songs um yep. to and, and reset kind of where they happen but i mean again that that's part of like every time a, a production gets redone that's part of why you redo it is you want to set it in a different place the funny thing about this to me in terms of like being an adaptation of romeo and juliet is that the thing about romeo and juliet that nobody ever seems to really remember is that those are all super rich people the Montagues and the capulets all have money and the yeah, twist of this the is like ain't nobody got nothing <laughs> in this movie and they're not and and they add on the layer this time of the the new york housing authority all that stuff of the gentrification which seems to be a much more modern sort of take because that i don't remember that being a part of any of the original <laughs> stuff it was just turf war stuff Yeah, I liked that spin that they did. And I thought that, again, that was something that they smartly put in to make it a more relatable movie for our current times. You know, that's something that's very prevalent in a lot of cities. And I think a lot of people Mm -hmm. can recognize like what they're trying to do there. So. All right. And it seems like we're getting really, uh, we're starting to encroach upon like the plot and talking about that. So Jay, why don't we uh, get into the plot summary before we get really into our details? It's 1957 and the recent New York housing authorities notice of intentions to relocate the neighborhood's Irish American and recently moved in Puerto Rican communities from the area in favor of a high rise gentrification has only escalated tensions between the residents, especially the rival street gangs, the Jets and the Sharks. Enter in Tony, founder of the Jets with his best friend Riff. See, Tony's trying to go straight after a year in prison over assault. And he's working an honest job at the old Doc's drugstore run by Doc's widow, Valentina. He cares for his friends, but he doesn't want to get dragged back into the turf war that Riff and the Sharks leader, Bernardo, are intent on settling at a rumble. To complicate things, Bernardo's young sister has moved to New York to live with him and his girlfriend, Anita. And as she's trying to make her way in this new world, she falls in love with Tony, whom she meets at a local dance. 
Tony and Maria uh, pledge their love for one another, knowing that their relationship will complicate things. So Tony and Maria decide to run away together, but not before Tony is to intervene at this rumble, hoping to stop the violence. And this backfires horribly as Bernardo and Tony trade fists before Riff and Bernardo engage in a knife fight. Bernardo stabs and kills Riff. And Tony, in anger, stabs and kills Bernardo, and the rest of the gang scatter as the police arrive. The police turn up the heat, and Anita pleads with Maria to break it off with Tony, though Maria insists she still loves him, even though she knows he killed Bernardo. And Anita goes to Docs to tell Tony to where to meet Maria so they can run away together. However, the remaining jets assault her before Valentina finally intervenes. Furious, Anita tells them that Chino, Bernardo's friend whom he tried to set Maria up with earlier, was so angry after the rumble that he shot and killed Maria. Tony learns this lie and believing it true, runs through the street, seeking Chino and asking him to die himself. But he sees Maria running toward him, not before Chino appears and shoots Tony in the back. Tony dies in Maria's arms and says his goodbyes. And Maria threatens to kill all of them, but can't force herself to pull the trigger. We see all the remaining jets and sharks gather together to take Tony off the streets as Valentina leads Chino to the coming police and Maria walks off into the night as credits roll. And did I mention there's a bunch of singing and dancing as well? That's the story of West Side Story, as it were. So we've uh, we've talked a lot about the why um, in the prelude to this. So I just want to jump right in with you all and get thoughts on the cast and particularly our two big leads. And I want to start with Rachel Zegler because she is our introducing. Uh, as I mentioned before, she's a YouTuber. I don't know her from anything. I've watched several of her stuff now. I understand that she was good. But the one thing I knew going into it, she had already passed one big test because Lindsay texted me and <laughs> says, the girl Maria's voice is just perfect. And then I heard it. And like halfway through the movie, I pulled my phone out like you're not supposed to do. And I, but there was no one around me. So it was okay. I was going to say. And, and, uh, well, yeah, we, we will talk about the box office in a minute. But yeah, there was no one around me. And so I texted Lindsay. I was like, you nailed that because this girl can sing. She, I thought she had incredible presence for a first time, you know, real actor or whatever you want to call it. Oh, 100%. She definitely had like the silkiest soprano pipes I have heard in a very long time. I think the, the better, I have not heard a better voice since I saw River dance, and I don't know if you've ever seen River dance live, yes, but they I also have. have singing, and it's yes. the most beautiful vocals I've ever heard, and that is what she reminded me of. And I could just eat it up. I can't, I can't sing like that. I can sing, just not like that. <laughs> and so I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely a, envious, and and I can recognize a spectacular voice when I hear it, and she definitely had it. Yeah, I really, I really dug her singing. I thought she had good comedy and timing and things too of playing the frustrated teenager who you know she took care of her father by herself for five years in puerto rico while her older brother was in new york trying to save up enough money to get her to come on and then she turns 18 she comes there and what we find out about her and what you'll know about everybody here is everybody works a hard job and i think i've mentioned it on previous podcasts i have had a lot of weird jobs in my day and one of which was being a commercial cleaner. So I understand what Maria has to do every night um, and just what what that's like. And uh, But I also get how you could actually pull a sing and dance number off doing that because once you get into the routine of doing that, nobody pays any attention to you. You can just go and do your thing. So I was having like a moment watching that. But I thought she, she had such good presence with everybody. 
and particularly because Ariana DeBose that they put opposite of her for Anita. I don't know her from anything, but boy, what a powerhouse. Like I walked out of this going, she really stole the movie from underneath the leads when you weren't looking. And Anita's a big role, but she was fantastic. I loved her in that. So Mike, real quick thoughts on, on Rachel Zegler and then uh, Ariana DeBose. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, she crushed it. Um, I think I even, uh, was kind of liking her presence even more than Natalie would. Um, and, uh, I mean, we all know that Natalie Wood was dubbed by, uh, I believe it was Marnie Nixon in the original. So like, I, I know Natalie Wood sang, but they said, no, it's not good enough. And then they dubbed her. And, but here I definitely felt like the spunkiness of the character. Uh, like when she says, oh, you know, like when, when Bernardo was talking to Chino saying, oh, like she's a bully, like she's gonna, you know, she's gonna, she's strong, independent. And you see, you actually see that and believe it. Um, so yeah, I thought she crushed it. Um, I'm not, I can't sing. I'm not much of a singer, but I love music, uh, even though I haven't like studied it or classically trained in it at all, or really any musical background, but I love listening to music and, you know, she's got that, you know, that voice that I immediately was like, yeah, this is, this, this works. It's perfect for this role. Um, and as far as Anita, yeah, she also definitely surprised me in how much she, yeah, like you said, stole the show from our from our leads here. Um, she was definitely that core, and I think it's also some of well, at least from what I can understand, like that wasn't in the original. Um, she added that that like humanity to the role, or like to the to the story that needed it, as well as you know the fury and the fire at the end of it. Um, so I yeah, I loved both of them. Uh, I, I they were probably my favorite of the entire cast, and we'll get to uh, I guess the Jets in a moment here but uh yeah as, as far as these two i they were phenomenal yeah and ariana debose is a powerhouse uh actress in musical theater and on broadway as well she's been in a lot of broadway musicals including hamilton um and a number of other things bring it on i think she was nominated for a tony at one point so she's She's familiar <laughs> with the mm-hmm. with the sing and dance and act routine, um, and you oh, can yeah. really see it. I mean, it shines. She shines very brightly throughout this yeah. whole film. I'm glad she- they hired professional like yeah. th- people that have been on theater, and they yeah. didn't pull a La La Land just to get butts and seats no. because that would have really taken me out of the moment. I mean, yeah, having Brian Darcy James as Krupke and then Rita Moreno as Valentina, which is a new yeah. character created for this because the Doc character is the, is the sort of older mentor. And they play it this time that Doc is dead and his widow is kind of running the old soda jerk store. They create this this person for it. Rita Moreno is the original Anita. And mm-hmm. so but it was a very different presence. But we should say, like. If anybody had influence on this for Spielberg, it was Rita Moreno because when he got her to sign on, she didn't just sign on to do this part, which she liked and thought was a neat twist. She, she her voice that you hear her song, that's from on the set. They didn't record that in a studio. Like she oh, did wow. that straight that day and she became executive producer on this because she showed up every day to like coach the actors and coach them through like, here's how to do this. Here's what, you know, this is supposed to be. And, you know, and just really give them a a presence of sort of why this matters. And growing up as a Puerto Rican American during that time, she had like life experience to share with all those actors. But I'll, I'll say what you said to Mike. I appreciated the fact that they got these, these Broadway actors. You know, I I mentioned Brian Darcy, James, Mike faced as, as riff again. I, I'm, 
don't know his name like I should, but the second I saw his face coming out of that that uh, you know heavy equipment where he's making out with his girlfriend and he starts singing the Jet song, I'm like, oh yeah, that was genius. And then you know David Alvarez has been on Broadway and done tons of you know work. And you you go down the cast list if you know Broadway, you, you, these people are all over it, and they will be for years. And you can see why because. It, it's one thing to take an actor and most actors can do some version of singing and dancing. Like I, Lindsay, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think they kind of just, you sort of have to do a little bit of all of it at one time or another. Um, and you just Sometimes. get better at some, uh, some things. You get you know, good at you. faking what you can't do. Right, exactly. Right. Um, as, as we've talked about in La La Land. <laughs> like, yeah. So yeah. We're not, not so good at faking what you can't do. <laughs> True. Well, on stage, but, it's much easier to fake <laughs> than it is on film. But on yeah. film, you get multiple takes. So, exactly. and editing. And <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and, and that's the thing is, that, like you say, on stage, particularly as a part of an ensemble, if you miss one thing, you know it and your director knows it. And but, maybe a couple people in the audience will notice yeah. it. But if they're watching, but most people are just absorbing all of it through all yep. of their senses and they're, they just get taken out of it, you know? And, um, and so, yeah, you can hide it a little bit better. And they did a good job of mixing in the clearly the people that had done a lot of Broadway with the people who didn't and haven't done a ton of that. Now, I think Corey Stoll has done a lot of plays and things like that. And I love him as Shrank. That's a part I love. And I thought he played that very evenly because that Shrank part can come off like a very ham-fisted, super racist jerk cop. And he's really not written that way and mm-hmm. stole wrote him played him very straight his, his job is to do one thing to try to keep crime down as possible while they rebuild these buildings and then he's going to get transferred somewhere else that's his whole gig in life and you don't get to be a police lieutenant in new york without knowing how to be political in a lot of ways. And and I thought Stoll, having played a lot of politicians i mean probably the most famous turn is on house of cards he's amazing on that show um Played that really, really well. And you put him opposite of Krupke and, and Brian DRC James, who has such presence and is so much fun as this little just frustrated man running around. You know, it's kind of like if Joe Pesci could sing and dance, this would be this man. Uh, and he does that. They had good chemistry together and worked as characters. David Alvarez as Bernardo is amazing. And and that's the thing we should say, like Ariana DeBose, him, Rachel Ziegler, they don't talk like that. They don't have natural accent. David Alvarez is from friggin' Canada. So he probably says more like Mike than anything else. And you know, yeah. you hear him talk, but they, they did the good affected. And there's, there's a difference in like, you can tell real actors that know how to do this stuff when they can put the accent on and it just slips through and you don't like, I don't wonder like, Oh, how are you faking that? Like it, they just really do it. Probably the best example of that. I ever heard the guy that played spike on Buffy, the vampire slayer. I had no idea he wasn't British until like years after the show was over. And I heard him talk. I was like, you're from California. Holy God, that was good. Like, so David Alvarez did a great job of getting his accent. Right. And then I think the, you know, he is Latina. I think uh, remember many members of the sharks are Latina actor, Latino actors. And, and, you know, it's just natural for them to speak in their natural tone. But um, I thought he did a good job of affecting that without making it too busy, if that makes sense. I, I really appreciate the level of complexity that that they're bringing to these characters, especially, you know, characters that were just like plot development people like, you know, they were there in the original and maybe the stage. I haven't seen that, but definitely from the first film, they were actually getting like a deeper layer of context to this conflict um, especially I feel like the sharks really get like a really heavy 
uh, context and development through this film. Uh, Jets sort of do, which we can talk about that, but I feel like I really do appreciate that the the minority group of this film is is getting that more added context, you know, being um, Puerto Rican Americans in the 1950s, 60s, mm-hmm. um, having to go through like, and then assimilating through um, into this new land, this um, this new environment that is also changing around them. And, and like people that were quote unquote native are also having to go through very similar, but different struggles. Um, but yeah, I, and, and all the actors really like they're all the top of their game. They do really bring out that, uh, that complexity and the development throughout this film. And I really do appreciate that. Now we got to talk about Ansel Elcourt because <laughs> I think we're at that point. If I take a big breath, I'm going to say a compliment before we get into, I get into critiquing him. Cause I do have some, some critiques. There are times in this when he's not singing and his singing is fine. I, I always, I told a friend of mine coming out of this, that like the singing in this ranges from fine to really good. Like there's nobody that's just bad, you know? He's definitely on the fine end, and it's one of those, like, we're going to get him through it. And even though I know he's a DJ and stuff, I don't think that's really the same. doesn't translate. See, if you can sing and then you can sing show tunes, that's a different thing, kids. Uh, but he he has a presence, though, and it's in his face a lot, that reminds me very much of a young Jeff Bridges. If you've ever seen, like, The Last Picture Show and some of that early stuff with him, maybe even something like Tron, which is a lot more of a dramatic movie than people remember it to be he has some, some presence and some character about him. And there's things he does at parts in this script that make me really dig his Tony and like it. And then there's things he does <laughs> where I just want to hit him in the face with a board because it's the, I, I don't get it. Am I wrong here? Because I feel like it's like, that's, that's the best take you had of that. Like it was, there's just so much like wooden non-emotive response to highly emotional things that I, I just, I guess I wanted more out of it than, than I got from him. So I, I had some problems with the, the Tony here. Ansel actually looks very much like the original Tony um, in, in the 1960, whatever West side story. Um, mm. So I'm not sure if that may be part of why he was cast. A lot of the main actors look very much <clears> like <throat> the original actors. Um, mm-hmm. If for, if I'm not sure if anyone else picked that up, but you know, I agree with your assessment, Jay. There are some very uh, face punchable moments that he has. I think though, to huh, Tony's also just and. And Romeo, if we're going to bring up Shakespeare, mm-hmm. they're just not great characters, period. Like, they're impulsive and uh, I can't I can't find exactly the words. But, I mean, it's like the lead guy and the lead woman are not always the most complex characters. You're going to find the complexity in the supporting cast most of the yeah. time. It's it's a it's a thing that Romeo and Juliet in a lot of ways speak to each other in Hallmark card 
Um, yeah. That's what I, yeah. I mean, they yeah. Didn't, and, and people have criticized like George Lucas built the you know, love story of the Star Wars prequel trilogy off of what he thought Shakespeare was, which means he cleared the cliff notes of a Romeo <laughs> and Juliet because that's really how that comes off uh, with the way Natalie Portman uh, is, is going on with uh, uh, Hayden Christensen, who are both fine actors, but. Not, not doing it that um and they knew it was garbage at the time too so they'll, they'll both tell you that because george doesn't write yeah. dialogue but th- the same here and that surprises me because tony kushner can write very good emotive dialogue and it's not like it's not there in the source anyway too it's all in how it gets delivered and the way these two kind of moony eye at each other that's part of the stories that they're they're dumb kids and they don't you know they're thinking all with the feels and none with the you know the brain. Well, their prefrontal cortexes are not fully developed yet, Jay. <clears throat> this is true, and particularly in a boy who's been in prison for a year. So let's just put that out there, because as a, a former young man, uh, I can tell you, um, you don't really have your brain together until you're probably thirty. Sorry, Mike. Um, so I mean, that's just that's how it goes. Um, but and you know, and that's part of it. But and I get that. And if you just sort of conceit that is okay, that's just you know, part of being a young boy, that's fine. Then there's what the performance was, which does feel very, and I mean this in all respect, very high school musical. And I don't mean the, the, the movie high school musical. I mean, high school emotive, let's do footloose, you know, kind of thing. It it felt like that. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. with Enzel, so he's very, okay. You know, I think, so he, (laughs) That's a great way to say it. Yeah. From so the original Tony, uh, I always took it that he plays this like happy-go-lucky, like very like he's excited that he's like he's turning a new page in life. He's like kind of getting out of the gang life, and you kind of hear that in just how he's singing his songs. You know, with um, like something's coming. Uh, you know, Maria. Like it. They're always like even just how he always has this like dreamy look. Like, oh, what's what's going on, man? You know, with with him and um in Riff's first interaction where they're just like smiling, like oh, say uncle, and it's like they're just like palling around. Here, I'd say Tony is like played way more seriously, which I guess makes sense with the context of going to prison. He's 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 seen the like psych. I don't want to say psychotic, but just that like violent uh nature come out where he almost killed someone and he's like come to terms with that and it's well i guess not maybe uh but he understands that he's a dark side and i think that could work but then it, it it's just very i think it's inconsistent in this movie and also like speaking of his voice it's i, I like his voice i think he can sing it's just not in this movie um and paired very, next to his counterpart of Maria, oh, yeah. it she just outdoes him tenfold. He's very, he's very like soft spoken in his voice, and and you know, I, I what I always envision like Tony is supposed to be like literally singing from his chest, belting yes. everything, like his love, yeah. his love yeah. for Mar- for Maria, and you know, you know, something's coming is. It's not bad. It wasn't. I think like the setting also kind of, you know, we, we took this, this big like open number or like the soundstage and it's alleyway in the original. And then we've like shrunk it into this corner store for editing purposes, I guess, which I'll get to the strange editing and blocking of this movie. But, um, but it's very, you know, soft spoken. He's, 
hitting more, I guess, lower notes than higher. Like when he's supposed to be belting, he's going, I guess, lower. And it's more like, honestly, it reminded me of Frank Sinatra when he first started singing. Like this kind of like low, like jazz loungy type um, singing. Lounge, that's the word. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And and then, you know, I thought it worked in Maria. Uh, Brian, my brother, thought it, it – uh, he had the other – the opposite reaction where he's like, yo, sing from your chest, dude. And I was like, eh, I kind of like the moments where he's when it's like, you know, uh, say it's soft and it's almost like praying. And he like nails that like really like soft spoken singing that I don't think a lot of people can nail. But then, you know, the whole character is supposed to be belting. Um, so, yeah, it was very <laughs> OK, I guess. Like that's like it sounds like a really like backhanded compliment, I guess, especially as you're the lead of this film but uh yeah I, and yeah. other songs i just thought it was just like oh dude like yeah, tonight but- i thought was not good at all on his <laughs> side you're like oh yeah, dude the whole, the whole soft singing thing you're not matt berniger from the national dude like you, you can't do that like this it and i realized that that's probably all he can do that is what he can do but i'm with Lindsay. you pair that against rachel ziggler and just this beautiful angelic notes coming out of that voice and then this big dude is just kind of lumbering these notes around and it's it's not great yeah it would have worked in la la land not in this movie yeah yeah, yeah. well and, neither of those leads could sing that's why that yeah, worked exactly <laughs> well the other reason why it would have worked in la la land and not here is that i can understand his choice of being a little more muted as an acting choice because of he's trying to keep a low profile. He knows what he's doing is wrong. He feels all these feelings, but he doesn't know how to emote. And that is how he's playing it. And on film, that works really well. That subtle emotion works really well on film. And that's what we're watching is a film, but we're watching a Broadway production on film and in a Broadway production, the bigger, the better. And it just doesn't match up. So it would have worked really well in La La Land. I agree 100%. It doesn't work here because it needed to be bigger to match all of the other performances. And I think it's everybody else's bigness too. Just looking at the other male performers, Bernardo is very big. David Alvarez is not a big guy. Ansel Elkhart is a big, tall dude, you know, especially Huge. by Hollywood standards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, by Hollywood standards, even, he's a they, giant. Make, they, they, they make yeah. reference of it at their first. Yeah, they I even yeah. like the yeah. You're really tall. Yeah. She pretty much think, says, "How's the weather was, up there?" Yeah. I think that was something from like the like the casting stuff. Like they made a joke about it, and they decided to keep it because yeah. it, it was cute. It was a meet cute, and it works in that. And if this had just been like your standard issue ensemble rom com, which there's another one coming, by the way, um, if y'all didn't know, if it was Gary Marshall, that would work. The problem is, is that these are characters that have established arcs, and there's a whole story, all this stuff, and it doesn't work, and then it doesn't match the the bigness of the other male characters. You know, I talked about Corey Stoll plays it low because Shrank doesn't sing. He is a spoken word only guy, but, and Krupke doesn't really sing either though. He just kind of dance around and do a lot of stuff because Brian, the RC James can do that, but you got Mike faced and David Alvarez in particular are so big and face oh. is a tall guy too, kind of a lankier guy, but he's so big and he's got such a big voice and he just can really belt and all that stuff. And it just, when you pair it, even pairing him, um, when, um, they have the the fight over the gun um pairing him against Elcourt. it just doesn't like there's like you you're listening to 
one of these guys during the cool song is what I'm talking about. Mike face clearly knows how to do a Broadway performance and get it on film where it's doing the thing that you would, you would experience in a theater. It's so big. And, and you see him do it and it just comes off and like, you can see Spielberg and, and everybody just eating it up, you know? And then you've got Ansel Elgort trying to match that. And he just doesn't know how to. And, and it's not his fault. It's just not how he works. And so could they have cast better? Maybe. I don't know who that would be. I, I don't know how you, you fix that unless you go with somebody again who's from Broadway that nobody knows. And that's the problem is you've got to have a star to hang it around because you've you've attached your lead female, your big female to the unknown. We're going to break somebody um, who's already more famous anyway from being on YouTube. And by the way, has made a lot more money than this movie's made on YouTube. Um, so, the, you, you know, you're trying to mint her, as it were. You've got all these other you know, supporting characters who are Broadway, you know, uh, experts and, and uh, well-seasoned. And then you put Ansel Elkhorn in there and it's, it's just the piece of the puzzle that like by itself is fine. When you add it to the rest of the recipe, it just doesn't mesh. Well, that's a frustrating part because I think the big name is Steven Spielberg. Like he still yeah. had, like he's one of those few directors that you see that and people are going to go see it just because of his decade decade spanning filmography that have, has literally changed cinema in every regards of that word the blockbuster the dramatic you know anything like he he is the period piece he has changed cinema so he is the like his name is the star he is top build steven spielberg presents or the steven spielberg west side story or whatever mm-hmm. and that's where it's frustrating where it's like, you can do whatever you want, dude. You know, you can cast that unknown person because people are, well, you think people are still going to see the movie because of Spielberg. Um, you know, people, you know, you can take all these big risks because if this movie bombs, guess what? They're still going to hand Steven Spielberg a $200 million check to make whatever the hell he wants. So yeah. that's like the frustrating part. It's like you've, you've had this decade spanning clout that you have worked your ass off and now it's like oh let's just like challenge ourselves with a musical but like also play it safe at the same time and like so i I don't know i think that there's there's very little excuse to say like oh well we need like like la la land i get i don't agree with it but i get it but here it's like steven spielberg is the star uh, yeah, like we, his name can bring everyone. That's an excellent point. And we should say, we didn't, we didn't mention at the beginning, this is a hundred million dollar movie. So for Spielberg standards, that's actually kind of cheap uh, in a lot of ways, but it only made 15. And I know it's the holidays and we still are dealing with COVID and all of that stuff. But y'all, the new Halloween movie Simul released on Peacock for like five bucks and theaters. And he made $15 million in an hour. Like that, like that's, that's not good. I think that was actually one of the bigger mistakes of the release of this movie was releasing it exclusively in theaters from a business perspective. That's probably was not the right move at this particular point in time. Yeah. And I wonder if they made that decision back when they didn't, they didn't account for the idea of like, they knew variants are going to happen. We all know that, you know, virology, that's just reality, but you didn't know how, impactful that was going to be particularly on the fact that this is aimed at an audience younger than even any of us and those people are not going to theaters they don't go anyway but they're really not going right now 
And the older crowd that might have been attracted to this because they saw it when they were kids or whatever growing up, is they're sitting around going, why, why even do this? You know, they're asking the same question you're asking, Mike. Like, you can do all that and this is all you want to do. Like, they don't, they're not into it. So who's going to see it? Because I can and tell you is, who was in my theater. It was me and there was a family of, of Asians in town. And I know they were Asian because the, I got to talk to them afterward. They were in town for somebody's, like two people's graduation in the family. It was the whole fam, y'all. We had grandma <laughs> to like cousin and it was, a, they were having a blast. They loved it. And I'm so glad they had a good time with it because it was me and them in the theater. And that was it. And, but I was like, who's going to see this? And I asked the people at the theater because I go there all the time. I'm like, have people been going to this? And they said, that's a large crowd for that one. And that's why it's stuck in this <laughs> little side. And I knew something was up because opening weekend, the Steven Spielberg movie, it had the IMAX screen, which nobody was going to see, by the way. And it had the little theater across from it, like across the aisle from it. And I mean, l- maybe this thing might hold a hundred people in it. And I thought, mm, this is saying like the studio knows too. And I think you're, you're onto something, Lindsay, that, they could have thrown this out on Disney Plus for like premium yeah. for a couple of weeks. And I think people would have paid it. Ten bucks, watch that at yeah. home, sure. Honestly, mm. swing it through Prime. I mean, make it available, but right. people have to buy it or whatever, you know? Right. They have yeah. so many options right now, too many options to not take advantage, but they didn't take advantage of it. Well, this yeah. is definitely this connection of Spielberg, which we've talked about, where he is not a fan of streaming platforms. He's a he is like part of the um, the church of the cinematic movie going experience, which I would prescribe to. However, these people aren't like these filmmakers, the David Lynch, Lynch's, the Spielbergs. Um, they're not doing anything to change it, to make it mm-hmm. better, which is frustrating. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know Spielberg, we've talked about it. Spielberg has gone on being like, oh, yeah, like streaming exclusive films should not be non- nominated for awards or Oscars, which like <laughs> bad that, news. Like, that's whatever like that's what he says and as a member of the academy i mean i think everyone's like yeah 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 whatever steven but um but that's the problem and and he's i guess he's gonna die on that hill and then you know no one's gonna see these movies and one of the films i watched leading into this i watched a few musicals uh some old uh some new actually so i'll just list them i watched obviously the original west side story i watched jacques zumi's uh umbrellas of chorberg and young girls of rochaford and just just, you know, this is a really classic, one of my favorite musicals of that era. Uh, I also rewatched La La Land for the perspective of the modern musical. I'm oh, sorry, and you put yourself also, through that again, man. <laughs> so. Well, I also watched Tick, Tick, Boom, the mm. the new uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda directorial debut uh, film about Jonathan Larson. And I absolutely love that movie. And I'm And it seems like a lot of people are it's generally very positive reviews and I would be very curious and that's Netflix exclusive. I'd be very curious to see if that got released, what would happen because, you know, Jonathan Larson with everything with rent, I think he's still a very popular. um, I mean, Lindsay, you might be able to comment on popularity of Jonathan Larson more now. Um, But, you know, I, 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 I thought with the character of Jonathan Larson the play of Tick, Tick, Boom and uh, Superbia as well, like pairing those in the same uh, in the same film. And then the electric uh, performance from Andrew Garfield and all the supporting cast, as well as like the really amazing direction of the entire film that, you know, 
is what I want to see in modern musicals. But Spielberg chose to, instead of do anything like original or adapt something that was popular, that may be more contemporary, he chose to do this. So that's like, uh, that's the last I'll say about that. But um, yeah, it's like, who's seeing this movie? And I think it's, 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 and it's fit. I don't know. There's lots of different things we could go why it's failing, but yeah, that's, that's the frustrating thing. Cause I, I just saw a, a new modern musical and it was mm-hmm. awesome. This is why I'm I'm pretty sure though that and your NPR reference earlier, Lindsay, is one of the many things I've seen where critics adore this. I'm sure this is going to be another one of those Oscar nominated, and it probably will win awards. Movie that doesn't make any money. That is just another in that long list of the critics love it, but but I'm curious why critics actually do love it because the difference between this and the '60s one is that the casting is just more true to life. And is good, but the story's the friggin' same. In fact, it's more raw now, which is you would think would be more problems for people, but I, it's not. And I don't, I don't know what the what the what is. You know, I could see it getting an award for costumes. Yeah, um, totally. And there were some really great uh, cinematography directing moments as well that I think really stood out to me. There was. Uh, this moment like at the dance where Mm -hmm. they um, I think everyone was dancing around Maria and Tony, but Mm -hmm. they were basically standing still and it wasn't a time lapse or anything. It was just, everyone was dancing so fast and them standing so still made it look like a dream sequence, Mm -hmm. which was a really cool effect. I thought. Mm -hmm. And there was the gunfight we had talked about a minute earlier was very, that was the first thing when I saw it, I was like, that's a Spielberg thing. Cause it looks like a scene in the Goonies and yes, exactly. <laughs> and I wasn't honestly throughout the entire film. I was not a big fan of the fight scenes. I, the dance fighting never did it for me ever. So I just don't think it translates well. And I feel like with a new movie, they could have done something so much grander. Mm -hmm. And they just didn't because really fight choreography is just dancing with a little bit more contact. And they just could have done a lot more with it, I thought. But it just it didn't do it for me. I mean, I want to ask. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Go finish your thought, Jay. Go go ahead. I got to cramp my leg. I got to stand up. (laughs) I was going to I was going to ask the the group about like the editing of the film and like the choreography of of just like the or or the cinematography I should say because I thought some places it worked like I thought the entire dance hall sequence was really superb I loved the reimagining of their first meeting behind the bleachers mm-hmm. that was like the one shot like there's so many close ups in this damn movie and and that's a, like a big critique I have of Spielberg in this film is like he doesn't let so many of the shots and i thought it worked in the dance hall especially behind the bleachers you know all these close-ups it works because it's a cramped space and i felt like i was with them and brian Mm -hmm. brought up the point that they were doing their dance from the original movie and he's like but why frame it like this if and do the dance if you don't see it i'm like well it's an easter egg you know it's it's them doing their dance and and like we'll recognize that and like you know he says oh we watch them like curtsy and bow but we don't see their legs i'm like well we don't need to we need to see the chemistry, like their eyes, the actors, Spielberg is giving the actors the stage to literally tell their emotions non-verbally through their eyes. And like, just 
really subtle body movements. And I, and it really puts us in that moment. I was like, okay, this works. But then, you know, I mentioned something good where we confine it. Even like the with uh, Riff and Tony's first meeting, it's in this dark, dingy storage room basement. And then we move upstairs to like a dimly lit um, like corner store and we're cutting back and forth. I thought tonight, the, the number tonight was the probably the most egregious of this because the whole thing, I'm like, what, why aren't we on a soundstage? Like, why are we not in this big, grandiose, bombastic fashion? And then we get there and it, well, I mean, the dance hall scene was was that. That was the first breath of fresh air. But then we get there, we get a hint of it where these like, you know, there's always a spotlight on Maria. You know, we got the top down angle pushing forward. Like it looks like she's on like the Empire State Building. It looks like she's so high. And then uh, he's climbing up and then they start singing. And we have, you know, close ups through the grate. Like the view is obstructed. Uh, there, like every lyric is a different camera cut and it's distracting. And then there's like moments, brief glimpses where there's restraint where the camera is like a, a looking, looking down on a crane and it has the two of them looking up and then it cuts back when they start singing. And then when Tony climbs up, you know, we have a really swift camera movement and it's a wide shot. And then I'm like, Oh, just keep it, keep it there. And then we get a close up of both of their faces just cutting back and forth, like over the shoulders. And I just found it entirely distracting because yeah. you're not letting the scene breathe. You're not letting, I, like, I'm sure the set was spectacular because I saw it in glimpses, but I can't see the whole, I can't see anything. And I felt like it was like that with a lot of like the fight choreography, which I guess made it a little bit more intense. Um, I thought the fight choreography reminded me a lot of um, kind of like Coppola's The Outsiders, especially in the beginning yeah. when they're like painting over the flag and it just felt like really gritty and like they're smashing paint cans over each other's faces. Uh, like they're whacking each other with pipes in the face. I'm like, damn, that's like pretty brutal. And then they but break it, into pot of berets and everything's fine. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so <laughs> that's what took me out of it. That's why I don't like yeah. it. I, I want to tell you, I want to tell you what, what I, I noticed, but I was going to say something. This may be controversial because I'm talking about somebody that's won multiple Academy Awards at this point. The cinematography in this movie is awful and it's awful because the set direction and the production design is friggin' beautiful. I mean, coming in, the, the way this movie starts, I felt like I was in Saving Private Ryan in some of the sh- you know, burnout buildings and stuff that they have the shootouts in, and then you realize it's in construction zone. All of that is gorgeous, and it's ruined when we put characters in the screen, and it's got to be right here, like two inches from their friggin' face. And I, I'm so glad you mentioned that about the Tonight number, because I kept wondering, like, how many times did these two kids have to do this? To get, or did they just have eight cameras at all times shooting at Peter Berging this and shooting it from multiple angles at the same time? Because it is cut to hell and back. And I, I don't get why that is the decision to do. I get Spielberg likes people to emote with, with his with faces. You're right about that. And that's something in every movie. But the sets and the production in, in previous films, just think about a movie like Jaws. The majority of the drama of that movie takes place on a friggin' boat with three dudes, three middle-aged to older guys. So there's a lot of close-ups, but you feel that set. You smell that boat coming through the dang screen. This stuff, I'm like, I'm looking at it and I'm going like, it looks like something out of the outtake of Ready Player One that's just happening in the background. It just doesn't matter. And it bugged me because I'm like, you've wasted a beautiful set design on lousy cinematography 
There's even a shot when they're in the church. It's just lens flare. Like they're clo- yes. slowly cl- zooming in and they're singing to each other how much they love each other and they're marry each other. But there's the, the window, the stained glass window in the background is distorting the image. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, and at one point, um, he moved like uh, Enzel Egort moves forward and like blocks it a little bit. I'm like, oh, the camera's focusing. I can see their faces. And then he moves back. And then it's just, I'm getting blinded by light and I just see like silhouettes. And I'm like, that doesn't, I'm like, just, just do a 180 shot of like, do the, the, the doorway or something like, hmm. like the, the long doorway. There's one place where all that stuff kind of works. And I don't know how they did it because it's a completely different from where it is supposed to take place. The officer Krupke song, which is a total like laugh break song anyway, that was beautifully done. Like that was <laughs> yeah. perfect because it is a comedy song. It is great. It was physical. It was fun. They used that little holding area in front of the, the juvie court thing. Like I loved that. And I kept wondering like, why can't the rest of the friggin' movie do that? I think that was some of the best choreography in the entire film. It was flawless and they mm-hmm. all just performed it to perfection. Also, it's one of my favorite songs in the whole film, so or yeah. in the whole show, period. So I'm a little biased, but I really thought that that cuz it was constantly moving but not in a way that was distracting or confusing. It just flowed right. really well. Well, all the movements had a purpose. Someone yes. was playing a caricature of a, of a real person. You know, I'm going to be the judge. I'm going to be the police officer. I'm going to be the social worker. I'm going to be the shrink. I'm going to be the judge that says this is all ridiculous. And I'm just going to be me to say, like, I am what I am because I choose to be. Like, that's the whole point of that that song. But again, it's a comedy song. And it, it it's one of those, like, it, there's old classic Saturday Night Live where they really were good at physical comedy and stage comedy and improv with, with um, sets and pieces and stuff. And Lindsay, you've done some improv, so you know what this is like. It's the ones that can get it right. And they use the props, right? You don't, it doesn't become distracting. Like you say, it's fun. That was fun. Mm -hmm. But then there's so many other times when the fight, the rumble is horrendously done. Like I, I saw that open up and I mean, I know that beat it, ripped it off. But the first thing I thought of was like, I just need Michael Jackson and the Eddie Van Halen solo now. Like that's, that feels like a bad remake of beat it on TikTok or something. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you guys, are you, are you guys like feeling the length at this point? Like I, there were definitely moments where I was looking at my, at my watch, like what time is it? Like, where yeah. are we in this movie? Because and it's not that the added stuff is is taking me out of it. It's it's actually I really enjoy the added context and the layers and even just even just like blowing up like big uh, like set pieces. Um, I, I'm enjoying those, but I'm like just looking at my watch like damn like I, what, what where are we in this movie? I need to like focus and 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 we'll get to the rumble because I, I got a lot of stuff to say about that too. But <laughs> I'm definitely I want to ask you guys if. If you're if you're feeling the length, because when I saw the original with the overture, intermission, everything, it's what like three hours, like just over three hours. I did not feel that. I did not feel the length when I saw uh, Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, a four-hour movie in theaters. I did not feel that. That was the sh- the shortest four hours of my life. So like I can my I can sit my ass in a seat for four hours and be fine. But this, I was just like. Are we there yet? Like, okay, when's this happening? When's I, it, like, which is weird because like nothing's changing, but I'm like not into the movie. Only because I knew the musical well enough and had 
had watched, I, I went and found an online performance of it again too, just so I had it in my head a couple weeks ago. And I kind of know the length of it. And I sort of, I knew they were rearranging songs, but I more or less knew when this song happens, this is about to come. I knew how long it was. So I didn't really notice it, but I'm not going to sit there and lie to you and go like, you know, of all the decisions you could have made, you could have trimmed about 20 minutes out of this and it would have been okay. I think everybody would have survived. Um, I yeah. Didn't, yeah I, I, in my head, I'm asking myself the same question I always ask about length. My wife notoriously does not have a lot of patience for long movies. Like the fact that she sat through the Hunger Games movies multiple times was sort of amazing to me because they are kind of long. But th- this, I'm like, I this is the point where Rachel would have checked out. And this is the point where she'd be like, you're still here. And yeah, because it, it goes on a little bit. But I kind of knew it was going to be long going in. So that was sort of my thought of it. Lens, what about you? Yeah, I knew I looked up the length of the movie before I got my tickets because I needed to know what time I was going to the movies and how long I could feasibly sit in a movie theater. And I felt the length probably right around the two hour mark or between like an hour, 45, two hours. But then the last, I want to say 30 minutes of the movie, I feel like flew right by for me. So... A lot was going on there, which I feel the like one, makes The sense. one song that goes on too long for me is I Feel Pretty. Because I, I get what they're oh, trying yeah. to do. Yeah. They go through so many layers of the department store and all of this stuff. I, I, I just felt – I mean, and she sings the heck out of it. So I, I'm not going to dog the performance. I just felt like that one could have been trimmed a little bit. I it's like the somewhere. It's not a great song. It's not a great song either. No, it's not. And it, it's kind of a silly one, especially when you give a boy like that and I have a love and you slam them together the way that it's supposed to be done. That's such a powerful song, but it does feel like they are rushing it. And I'm like, you just uh, – you, you're supposed to step over each other in that song a lot. I realize that, but – let that breathe because that was the other thing too is they're having that argument in that apartment and there's like two times when they pull up and you see sort of the the length of it of where they are and you realize how small of the space it is but so much of that is it's shot right up under their nose and uh, it's oh god it just it took me out of it but i, I would have rather that song go on a little bit longer than i feel pretty to go on for another minute and a half than it didn't need to mm-hmm. yeah so i guess we can get into the rumble because yeah. I, I, I liked like the reprise of tonight. I did like the buildup. I was like, okay, like here we go. This is like a huge moment that we're that in like cinematic history we're building up to. How can you, how, how do you handle this? How do you handle this? And um, I definitely have some choice words for it <laughs> in that. So we get there, like, it's great, great setup. You know, we have both the gangs. I really do like the top down shot of, of every, of everyone walking together. Being in the salt, like the salt reservoir Mm -hmm. for the sanitation department, I thought was a nice choice. I like that. I like, you know, how they they arrived at like that actually looked like a cool set. They did nothing with it, but it looked great. Yeah. Yeah. I was expecting, like I said, I was almost like after that opening, like fight when the, when like the two gangs clash, I was expecting almost, like I said, outsider level violence between like like angsty like young adults like i was expecting like people to be like their faces thrown into the sand or into the salt or like them throwing it or like incorporating into the fights or like someone gets hit and then they like literally pour salt into the wound like i was kind of expecting a little bit more gritty and nothing happens but 
uh, when we have uh, Tony and Chino come in, which is, you know, an interesting, I, I again, adding more, like, Chino is the character that gets the most development out of every, like, out of every, like, two-dimensional character. Now we have, like, more added context and layers, and we actually, like, kind of feel for this guy. He's not just some nameless person that has to, that gets a gun to shoot Tony just because the plot says he has to. Um, so I like how, like, they both go in, and then, you know, I, I kind of like how um, Tony, uh, how or how Ansel Igor tries to literally just try and be like, hey, I'm sorry, apologizes, tries mm-hmm. to settle everything down by being like soft spoken and quiet, but then he gets punched a few times and he just goes buck wild on, on Bernardo and they fight. And that was when I started the turn because I remember in the, at least in the, in the movie, I love how Tony was just so like emotional and desperate, like pleading, like guys, please don't fight. I don't want to fight you, Bernardo. And even like, he's getting punched and beaten around and he's refusing to fight. They're even throwing him back into the, into the circle to fight and here now (laughs) tony taps into that dark side and he just like he wins he wins the fight he beats the shit out of bernardo and then you know that moment of oh my god i'm back in this moment and he walks away and this is where spielberg doesn't have that restraint to just let the shot linger because i noticed it just like when when he's walking away tony's like breaking down realizing he tells it in his eyes that, oh my God, I'm back there. And he's, and, and maybe he even promised uh, Maria that he'd stop the fight. Then uh, Bernardo, you know, was trying to pick the fight again. But Spielberg doesn't linger. So we can't see how broken up Tony is about this. And then the knife just falls on the floor and then they just pick up and they start knife, knife fighting. I remember one of the first time I saw West Side Story, at least bits of it, I was like eight or seven or eight. My mom was watching it. And it was right at this point in the rumble. And I will never forget like that moment when Rust Hamblin, you know, he gets accidentally hit or he gets, I forget the context, but he gets hit by Bernardo and he just rips his jacket off and pulls out a switchblade and that glinting light in the blade. I remember at that young age being like, not having context of what's going on, thinking, oh, like shit just got real. And <laughs> yeah. maybe not exactly that, but I remember like thinking like, uh oh, like what? And then I was like, so in impacted and then even further in the original you know tony's like pleading like guys no don't fight he's even trying to jump into the fight and they're throwing him out and that makes uh and then that that makes it when a riff gets stabbed in the original so impactful because you know they're dancing around he gets stabbed and and then uh, you know tony picks up the knife and really impulsively in an emotional state stabs him where in this movie I didn't get that impact because there was no knife glint. There was no like, uh Oh, knives are out. Like this was supposed to be a fist rumble. And now like weapons are brought. It didn't help that everyone showed up in chains and bats. They do have, they do have that bit earlier where they, they they kind of agreed that like, we would go to at least like bats, but what the, the, you know, riff and his guys are like, these guys are bringing blades. We know that, you know, they're dirty Puerto Ricans, whatever. They always have a blade. And so he, he has this whole bit where he buys a gun in a bar and, you know, I'm bringing a gun because I know they're going to have, you know, I'm I'm going one, one level above. They're going to have knives. I'm going to have a gun. And that's, that's the whole, point of you know tony trying to get the gun from him and and he ultimately does and he gets kicked out and thrown away you know because it's no part of the rumble i think the problem that i had with it mike is that that the, you knew the knife fight was coming it's that when it happens it's just like and uh, now we go with knives 
and it's, there's no like emotion to it. Like, yeah, there's there no dramatic. The original. Flare, and I'll tell you, in, in the stage too, like it's a big deal when the knife comes out. Like it's like, woo, you know, like the music hits. Yeah, and it's like it's, it's, it's just different. nothing. Yeah, like people can die, and and that's like when Riff gets stabbed here. I do like how it was played here, where he's just like in such disbelief, and then even just the quiet tone of okay, just just pull it out, and then he dies. I thought that was like, um, like faced. He plays it so well, where he's like. Oh, okay. This happened, and and then when he just picks up the knife, you know, <laughs> Bernardo just lets him come over. I guess he's in shock too that he actually went through with it. But you know, he Tony slowly picks up the knife, slowly walks over, and then stabs him right in the chest. And I just didn't get the impact of the moment here as I did in the original, where it felt like it was such an emotional. Like this felt emotional, but it wasn't so sudden because I literally just watched Tony beat the crap out of this guy, like get on top of him and like, you know, like fight club him. Like he stopped. Well, he stopped because he realized how monster he was, but I just didn't get the same impact here. It just felt like a beat that we had to cross off the list. And that's, that's not a good sign because this is such an impactful moment in the story in the end in the film. And I just felt like, Oh, okay, here we are. Check, check. Knife, hat, knife fight. Bernardo's dead. Riff's dead. And it's just, that's really so underwhelming. Yeah. I have nothing more to add to that. <laughs> excellent, excellent assessment. <laughs> the impactful part of it is the very end of it when they all run away. And the cops show up and they pan from the, you know, down to the top and there's just the two dead kids laying there. Mm-hmm. It's like, and that is the tragedy. And they needed to linger on that a little bit more. And I'm with you. When Tony kills him, he should do it in a fit of absolute rage. And he just mm-hmm. walks up to him like, okay, as dead eyed as Jason killing another you know teenager in part eight or whatever. I mean, it's just the same sort of like there was nothing there. And, th- and that's not a singing problem. That's an acting choice. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean by like, there's times he does stuff and I'm like, why would that be the take we would go with at that moment? Because you needed to be overwrought with emotion. Because um, later on, when he's with Maria and she's beating the crap out of him, basically for doing that, he's like emoting like crazy. And I'm like, Oh yeah, let's get back to that, that scene too. Yeah, yeah. I was like, Where did you? Why did you not like do that when you killed the dude, man? Like, it, I don't know. It just seems so. I don't know. It's so perfunctory. Is just how I felt about all of it, and and that's and that bothers me because that scene is so cool and so impactful in its not only original form but just in the way it's written and the way it's done. And it just in this, it just feels so flat, like all the way. And that bothers me too because again, David Alvarez and Mike Face have carried the emotional weight for the male side of this movie entirely, and now they are both literally dead on the screen. And so I'm like. <laughs> Where's my emotional resonance guy? Because Porcino is is supposed to be the opposite. Like he's the other coin of Tony. He's the Puerto Rican Tony. He was a guy who has a past that he has overcome because he's educated himself. He's trying to be straight or whatever. But when he pushed come to shove, what happens? If he picks up the gun, he, he goes, you know, wild and he goes wild with jealousy and it costs him. And then at the end you see it on his face, you know, and, but they don't give anything. I mean, they finally give that, that character something to do and they give him a story and they don't linger on any of it. That's, that's the other part. I'm like, for all the two hour and 40 minutes we're lingering here, you could have given that a little bit more of a minute than what it got. 
Because I had to fill in the blank for a lot of that to happen. That's just me knowing the story to know that. Yeah, and and I guess like the next – so then we have like I Feel Pretty. Uh, another point that I didn't really I – don't, I don't think I brought it up. I do like the the culture that's infused into the story. Like I, I really love how the, uh, the Spanish-speaking characters speak Spanish and there's no subtitles. So yeah. I don't speak Spanish. So – and I'm assuming – most of the people that had seen the movie or seen the movie don't speak Spanish either. And, um, but so you have to infer through acting what is being, um, conveyed and I can pick up a few words and knowing the story here and there, but I, I, and they, and they know when to, I guess, you know, for the non-Spanish speaking audience members, when to, you know, drop the phrases in English. Uh, so you can kind if you're not following what's going on and just through like broad emotion, you can, okay. You know, you can figure it out, but we, you know, we get to Maria in her apartment, you know, like distraught over the death of her brother and Tony is just standing there, you know, in there and she's, you know, you can't come in, you're a killer, you're a killer, you're like beating, you know, punching on him. And he says, I'm going to go to the police. She collapses and, and grabs the jacket and says, well, if you do that, I'll never forgive you. And like for turning yourself in as I took it. And then, and then they proceed to sleep with each other. Like full yeah. on, like have sex with each other, which, mm-hmm. like, even for like Romeo and Juliet, like that's bizarre. Like that is super bizarre. <laughs> like, I, and I just remember in the original movie, you know, she, you know, they they like have a kiss, they have their tender moment, like, oh, like we'll still run away together, and then Tony runs down the street, and Anita comes in and says, he killed your brother, but not like post sex do they have that conversation. And it's like within like 30 minutes of her, of like her brother's like not even cold yet. And, and they're like having sex with each other. Like even I was like, whoa, like, cause then we're singing, um, well, we're, uh, well, uh, Valentina is singing the, the song, song that was song. originally yeah, yeah somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then we, you know, we, <laughs> we cut to them like making out on the bed and like taking their clothes off. I'm like, this is like a double take moment. Like, wait, 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 this isn't I'm not seeing this. Right. Like I can understand if they're like coddling and they're just like both emotionally distraught, but they go full like physical with each other, which is very an odd choice to go with. I don't know. I don't know. If that's just me, but that was very bizarre. I don't know if it was that bizarre. I'm going to I'm going to disagree with you there. I think and I <laughs> Let's see. I'm not let let's just ride this train for a minute and see where it goes. But <laughs> I Oh, think, I'm on board. I'm strapped okay. in. I'm ready. <laughs> We're going to crazy town, everybody. Strap in. <laughs> but we're dealing with two very emotional very impulsive teenagers who think that they are in love, who have both just been through a very traumatic experience. And emotions are like at above sea level. <laughs> and and they just kind of ride the emotions into post-pubescent sexuality. And that's what's going to happen when you get these crazy kids who think that like there's nothing else outside of this world besides you know this other person I, i'm gonna come down the middle of this i hear what you're saying Mike, <laughs> but i'm I, i'm more on Lindsay's side of things because i'm going back to romeo and juliet 
Roman's cousin gets killed in front of him and he gets really distraught about it. And he goes and he sleeps with Juliet again. And I mean, it's like, it's part of the story. It's not in the original, like what the original movie West has to Cause in 1960, man, nobody slept with each other. Lucy and Ricky were in separate beds. How they had a kid was anybody's guess, right? You just didn't do that. So obviously we're going to push that in here. And you know, they didn't push it real far. Cause it's still incredibly tame. I mean, you can see more on a CW show. Goodness gracious. Um, you know, and so it, it's still pretty tame, but I get it. It's overly emotional teenagers who think they're in love and all this stuff is running wild. And it's like, we got to do something with all this emotion. It's going to go into each other. And that's literally what, I mean, is what's going on. So like, I, I get that. I didn't, I didn't even blink at that. What I thought was a neat twist on it is Anita walking in and like how she's sort of like on your side, Mike, she's blown away. Like knowing you like make out with a dude, but I look at your bed, girl. Like I know what's going on in here. Like it was, what is, what are you doing? And I think that actually gives good movement to their double song together. And that's mm-hmm. what makes that, that work. Like the emotion of that all drives. I, I was okay with that. I want to jump back to one thing you said though, about the, the Spanish to English and all that stuff. That was a, a conscious choice that Spielberg and Kushner made was that we're, if we subtitle it, then we're, we're dishonoring the Spanish language, which is not what we want to do. We want to give that presence, but it's in the script. Like originally that the characters, particularly Anita is constantly telling you other people like speak English, use your English, you know, and then the cops do it too. Like in English, you know, all the authorities in English and it's not a, we're better than you think. It's a, I don't understand you and I need you to communicate with me thing. And so, but when they get their emotions running, what do they do? They roll into their natural language. And I appreciated that. I don't know Spanish well at all either. I can pick a word, you know, here and there. But when you get a real Spanish speaker who can really rattle it, like it's fast. That's a fast talking language. And, and that's the fun part is to watch them get into it. And you realize like, I'm not catching any of that, but I still follow what they're talking about. Like I, I enjoyed that. I thought that was a nice choice and was, and was a good thing. And it's not a, it's not because it's the political correct choice or whatever you want to call it. I actually think it's a good, like it's a good cinematic choice. Challenge the friggin' audience to, you don't need to know what they say. It's not, it doesn't matter. Like I'm going to be on Christopher Nolan's side. It doesn't matter what anybody says anyway. It's how they act it out. That matters. And I, I appreciated that. I thought that was good. Um, the fact that the two crazy kids ended up, you know, getting it on after some tense moments, I've seen it happen in a lot of movies. I'm not surprised. That's that's all I'll say. Yeah, fair enough. I, I hear your argument. I <laughs> it's still been pretty bizarre to me, but I I understand where you got what you guys it's are because saying. Because you're a logical person, Mike, and you're thinking logically, and you got to remember <laughs> well, these kids are not. They well, don't think logically. So. That, I was trying to remember that of just like, you know, this is Romeo and Juliet. You know, it's it's not about the accuracy of human emotion or, or like how people logically react to things or how people respond to trauma. I'm not kind of coming at it from that perspective. It's more just, um, I guess maybe I am a little bit because I even like I said, even I was like, that was whoa, that was kind of like way out of left field. Cause then they like, they, it's almost like a sex comedy, like a teen sex comedy where they like sit <laughs> up and like his chest is there and she's holding, she's like covering her breast and I, and then like, Oh, I gotta go. Like it almost, it almost felt like that, but, but it's not like, Oh, the parents are home. The cops are busting down the party. It's, Oh, the cops are trying to find me because I killed your brother and your, your brother who remember I killed uh, your, uh, his girlfriend who just came from the body identification is now walking in the door and I got to get my ass out of here. So 
they, yeah, I guess I was com- coming at coming at it from a more, I guess, logical perspective. But for the most part, I was trying, <laughs> I've been dissociating like logic and just like like the theater, <laughs> like story narrative. But that part I couldn't yeah. turn it off. That's true. We need to talk about too the thing that happens with Anita at the end of her encounter with with Maria here, and after Shrank interrogates her, and you know. Anita kind of gives this sort of coded message. Like I need you to go get my medicine from the doctor, you know, all that stuff. And she goes, and what happens with her when the jets attack her as it were. And Valentina has to intercede on that. And, you know, you've got the, the jet girlfriends or whatever that try to intercede and they get just thrown out of the building. And they're, I mean, they're going to gang assault her and that is really uncomfortable and pushing. Yeah. And it's, yes, it's not scary. in the 60s movie. It's in the script though. It's part of the thing. Um, it's it, on the stage. It plays off a little differently. They just kind of corner her and you start, you can infer what's about to go down. The fact that they went as far as they did with it. I was like, wow, they really wanted to push that home. And I do think, though, that makes Anita's sort of foot stomp at the end, like, screw America. After I've sang this whole song before about how lousy Puerto Rico is, I would rather go there where I know the gangsters and the villains than here, where you hide it all and all that stuff. I I I liked that moment. And it's it's where I thought the movie tried to rescue itself, because at this point it had derailed for me. I'll just go ahead and say that. And I thought, well, that that was a a neat choice and a, a dangerous one. But for me, that worked. I thought, and I think a lot of that is because Ariana DeBose is such a great actor and Rita Moreno really comes in and does a good, good moment there as well. I, I liked all of that. What did y'all think of that? I loved it. I thought she had an incredibly powerful line too, which I believe she said in Spanish. Um, but she said, I am not American. I'm Puerto Rican. Yeah. Right before she stormed out the door. You feel her, you know, who mm-hmm. would want to live in that place with those people. But I I did not think that that the choices in that scene were poorly done at all. I'm with you, Jay. It worked for me. And it was like the descending of all of the all of those boys, you know, just and then the other Jets girls like screaming outside was very, very powerful. Yeah, I'm going to you know, agree with everything you guys said. That was when I thought the cinematography of the close cut angles like you're there. You can't yeah. look away. You're watching and you're and like everyone is is also like, no, stop, stop. And I and I did like those moments with the Jet girlfriends where they're like, they understand that something bad's going to happen. But, and they say, no, get out of here. We don't want her kind here. We don't want her here, but they're standing uh, in front of her. They're not like on the outskirts, like, nah, just get out. Like they know something bad is going to happen and they get in the middle of it. And then when blows start going, even the, I, I love that little detail when Anita and uh, the blonde girlfriend, uh, grassy or when they try she tries to grab her hand yeah Yeah. and then they rip her hand away throw out the door lock the door and they start banging and then yeah like Lindsay, what you said when they descend on her and then valentina comes up and says oh you like you animals you monsters and then like the back of her dress is unzipped and you're like oh my god and and you know then that little monologue of i don't know if that was in the original uh stage where it says, I've watched all of you when you were little kids growing up and you've all no, run that's, into rapists. That's added in. Like Doc sort of chides him, but he doesn't do like that. I think that. was the final, like the nail of like, yeah, that, like that was 
all like well executed. And I think that's in my notes. I think I said credit where credit is due. Like the movie doesn't shy away from like the ugliness of like prejudice and racism. Yeah. And um, yeah, I literally have, yeah, you have grown into rapists as that was like the final nail. And, you know, some of them looked very, you know, like, what have I done? Like, I think one of the characters was even like starting to cry about, or at least it looked like it, like kind Mm -hmm. of like the weight, like when the emotion is stripped away, like just looking down of like, what have I done? And then they all just run because they're immature children. Um, yeah, I think this movie does also hit home that like they're kids. We didn't mention like with the guns, like, you know, we have this really big setup of, you know, this, this is a, this isn't a toy. This is a gun. You know, like, do you, like, have you ever fired it? Oh, like a Colt fires 22s. Like this is a pretty small hole, but it can leave a pretty big hole in your head. And they yeah. put the gun against like, they like push them around. And then the scene immediately proceeding is them playing cops and robbers, like pointing a loaded gun at each other, like bang, 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 I'll kill you. They're, they're being kids. Um, like that's the thing is like, it's yeah. supposed to remind you that they're, they're just boys. Like they have no, yeah. like they have no sense of their consequences to their actions because all of these guys, and that's the thing about the jets and you really get it in the songs. And I give a lot of it again to Mike face and the way he, place it off because if you're not paying attention to the words you don't catch it these guys are losers and they know they are and they don't think they're ever going to get out of it they know they're going to wind up becoming the fathers they hate and they just kind of accept it and it's you know it's their fate whereas the sharks the puerto ricans are working hard to not be the thing that they escaped and that they ran away from that's the juxtaposition of the two and it's why it makes it such an impactful story because they they're both people in the same situation, but one has accepted it and is letting it keep them there. The other refused to and want to rise above it. But when they boil down to their raw emotions, they do the same awful stuff. And, and there's, there's a, there's one bit of that in the doxing that's great. And it's in the play too, or in the, in the, the original piece about where they talk about how they, they feel bad about leaving riff laying in the salt you know, pit. Like they didn't get him. They just left him there. Now he's in a morgue somewhere. And like, they just feel bad about it and stuff like that. And it plays into what will happen at the end here with Tony, where they come together to carry him off in like this funeral procession, if you will. Um, like they've sort of come together enough to realize like, this has got to end because we're just, this is all, this is all that comes from it is people die. And this is not what anybody needs or wants. But I, yeah, I, I, I'll applaud the movie for going there with the scene with Anita. And again, a lesser actress could not have carried that and made it work. And they got two great ones in there to pull that off. And uh, it worked out well. And then, you know, the thing is though, she drops a huge lie and you understand why she does. And she's like, you just tell Tony that there is no Maria coming for him. Cause Chino shot her. And it's like, wow. And you know, and that's the, you know, Juliet has poisoned herself. What shall I do? I shall soliloquy for 35 minutes and then I will, you know, kill myself as Romeo is going to. And he basically just like, just shoot me, just get, go out and shoot me. And the only thing you said outsider several times here tonight, Mike, and um, that movie's Allie, not good, yeah. uh, but there, there are oh, two great scenes ooh, in it. Yeah, talk there about two, that because I actually really like yeah. the outsiders. Yeah, well, we'll come back to it another, another day, perhaps on our tours or, or film strip. <laughs> but um, there's two scenes in that movie that are awesome. The Rumble is awesome. And Dallas's end of that movie is awesome. And Matt Dillon's end in that movie is, is tragic and is amazing. And I felt like they told Ansel Elkhorn, go watch that on YouTube. Probably Rachel Ziegler threw it on her phone and let him watch it. And then go do that <laughs> in the, in the street. And I know that's what Tony does is he runs through the streets yelling. 
but for a character who, and for an actor who has chosen to really tamp the emotions down so much for him to run through the streets and just screaming for come and kill me too. And all that, it just, it rang completely false to me. I'm sitting there going like, I know that's what you're supposed to do. You're reading your lines. You're doing what you're supposed to do, but I don't believe it. I don't buy it. I don't think that's what you want. And I like the original, I believe it. Tony wants to die. Yeah. This guy the emotion wasn't there. It's just not there. It's just it's not there. And that's, and that's so sad because again, he's given good bits of performance, but there's a lot of it that's wrong and it's totally wrong here. And so when he gets shot, I'm like, yeah, you know, I mean, like I felt nothing for that. You know, I, I've seen the stage production of that and it will bring emotion out of you. I see, you see the 1960s movie and it's like hard to not cry at that. This I'm like, and sing. Yeah. I think that scene could have even been elongated, like trim some of the other ones. But from what I remember the original, he goes around like all the major set pieces and is like, Gino, kill me. And like, we yeah. see, um, we see Maria, like they're all like, they're all like trying to like hone in through his voice. Like he's going through the streets yeah. saying like, kill me here. He goes like a hundred yards yeah, and, maybe uh, right. Like his next door. Like that's this wasn't that the whole wasn't that the whole thing? They even say like, oh, like if you're trying to find him, like it's this huge like city turf block it's area. Twenty that blocks. You have to search. Like it's yeah, and you find him within fifteen seconds of him finding out that he thinks Maria is dead. So I think that could have been even elongated and like bring up the tension of like, well, I mean, even though we know how it ends, like who's going to find him first? And I think that would have been. The, t- the tell of if the movie worked or not but like even though we know how it ends like build up the tension like oh my god is maria going to get there first who's going to get there even though in the back of our heads we know how this is going to end we there's still like a glimmer of hope like oh maybe he gets away but it just happens in a blink of an eye and yeah like you said and scene you know sing sing your song like sing your little reprise of tonight and die and then you know take the gun and uh, which is this is the scene where i think natalie wood shined better at the ending of like kind of closing the whole you know theme of everything together um i don't remember specifically what natalie wood said because i watched the movie like, a few months ago or a month ago but obviously it's like the the idea of what she says here of just like you're gonna kill each other for nothing and you know takes the gun and points it at everyone I thought it was much more uh, 99% of the way I'm, I'm with this, this version of Maria until like the final scene, not to say she did it bad or anything. Like it was very, is good, but I just thought the original with Natalie Wood was a little bit more there, but maybe that was because it had better buildup and I was more invested at that point. I could see that. I, I really liked Rachel Zuggler's, speech at the end as Maria, I thought, and maybe it's because she had been so angelic most of the movie. And this was her moment to fully break. And so it felt like it felt like a, a bigger character shift. So that worked for me. And, and she was just desperate. And there was a moment where I was like, Oh, She's going to die too. Like this is mm-hmm. this is really this is going to be full fully Romeo and Juliet is what we're going to see here and then she didn't. Spoilers, but yeah, yeah there was well, my she, tension right there. 
she does die inside though, because she does this mm-hmm. great thing with her eyes where yep. she just blanks and you just see like the veil drop and like, she's just dark. Like all of everything that she loves is out of her. Her brother's dead. All right. Her roommate is gone. She doesn't know this at this point, but she'll never see her again. And her, the love of her life up to that point is dead. All that's happened in a day. In, in a day, this girl <laughs> has fallen in love. All right. Her brother, she's had huge arguments with him. He's dead. Another guy's dead that she's sort of run into and knows her boyfriend is dead. She's seen some stuff. And the fact that, that Rachel Zegler, again, not a professional actor, whatever that means, like just totally nailed that. And, and you just see it. Like it just, it's almost like they, you know, color corrected it. They just dropped the color out of her face. And I was like, that's pretty amazing. Like that was, it's a dark way to end. I mean, it's a dark ending anyway, mm-hmm. but there's a twinge of hope in Natalie Wood's ending. And there's a little twinge of hope in the stage version's ending. There ain't no hope for this girl. Like, I don't know what she became, but it's, there's a dark times coming because we didn't have therapy, you know, for this kind of thing back then, particularly for immigrants. Like this is beyond, we don't have it for them now either, but we, there certainly didn't in 1957 or whatever. And you don't know what she's going to. And, but you just see that her life has literally been destroyed in 24 hours. And it's, it's sad. And it's, it's a very howling ending that this movie does not freaking earn. And that's what bothers me because it's a great moment of performance that is not worthy of the last two hours and 40 minutes I've just sat through. That's what bugs me the most about it. Yeah. Even the delivery of like, I can, I can kill because I can hate like just the delivery of that. I was like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's perfect. Cause like, like you two were saying, like she's this angelic presence and now it's like, the angel's gone. Like now she like knows how to hate as opposed to, I feel like, I mean, I feel like Natalie Wood was just angry. Like that delivery was angry, but it was also like angry and sad and just like kind of not so much pleading, but more of just like, wake up. Like this is a reality check. Like this could easily be one of you. uh, If you just let this, these petty turf wars that no one will remember, this can be any of you like, like almost like, yeah, tying everything together of this is like the, 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 the story of caught, like the, the cautionary tale of like what happens when you just are violent for, for no reason, um, unchecked violence. But here, yeah, I just, I don't know. I didn't really feel earned. I mean, I, I mean, I like the moment when they pick him up and uh, carry him away as a group, but, at, and then, you know, we just fade to black and I was like, all right, I got, I got, a, I got, a, I'm gonna, I got a conversation in 45 minutes. Let me see if I can get, collect my thoughts as opposed to just, yeah. as opposed to just like reflecting about what I saw. Is Tony a good actor? I can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great question. And I think it's a great way to end and segue into our final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn <laughs> ratings. So Mike, Lindsay, what are yours for the 2021 version of a West Side Story? Mike? Um, yeah, so it's it's like I said in the beginning, it's like perfectly okay. I mean, I guess I went into the movie with pretty, I want to say low expectations. Let's put it this way. I said to my to Brian, my brother, uh, I'm expecting slightly better than mediocre. So that's like setting the bar really low uh, as is. So it was better than that, but like not much better. 
So I have been really getting into Letterboxd. We talked about it, Jay, um, on, on my show. Anyone that doesn't know what Letterboxd is, it's just essentially like a database uh, collection of movies. Uh, people can write reviews. I've been using it, uh, just the catalog movies, as well as just have a database and, and catalog of things I've been watching new, my DVD collection, things like that. And so you rate the movies out of five stars immediately. I'm giving it a two and a half star. So that's like, for me, very like in the middle, like it's serviceable. Like I think a two star and below is like, like kind of bad to like pretty bad. And then like two and a half is like serviceable. Like it did its job. And then, you know, three and up is that thing. But two and a half stars is what I'm rating. And I knew going into that, that was like, well, coming into this conversation, that's where we're going to be. So I said, in the beginning, like this conversation is pretty much going to dictate where I land on the recommendation because I was going back and forth between either a weak recommendation or a weak not recommend. So go, I guess going with uh, film strips re- uh, review, I, I'll say, ex- I guess the, it's the, uh, I'll say the popcorn rating is exactly what I had at the movie. A, uh, like a, like a small meat, a, sh- a medium popcorn. Shmedium. Um, it's, it's not, it's not quite like as bad as like, you know, a small cup, but I don't quite think it's a medium either. So it's like that in between where like the small, like you could put the medium inside, but it's like kind of piling over and you probably don't need, need it, the extra popcorn. So it's like that, that medium popcorn. I guess I just recommended a new, I, I just created a new uh, popcorn rating. Oh, oh, medium. Been around a while. Nick coined oh, good. years ago. So, yeah. Okay. I wasn't sure. I, I wasn't sure if you guys had had coined the medium yet, but yeah. medium. And it's then, not official, um, but we'll, yeah, guests get the unofficial rules. So. Perfect. So, uh, yeah. So then a two and a half out of five and I'm going to go, I guess it's going to be whatever mood I'm in. So right now I'm in the, uh, we cannot recommend mood. Um, it's just, that's just like my hot take after just seeing the movie a few hours ago. I just, the cast is mostly good. Uh, I mean, Enzel Elgord is okay as Tony. Um, I think the performances are pretty good. The cinematography is, it can be good. It's just the editing for the most part, I'd say like 80% of the time, the editing just kind of like ruins it. Um, and I, I do, like I said, I appreciate the, the unflinching uh, view of racism and prejudice and the effects of that in the movie uh, also was like adding the layers of complexity and development to characters that didn't necessarily have it before, as well as just adding more like naturally injecting culture into a story that is ultimately has a lot to do with culture than I think people realize. Mm -hmm. So, but all that being said, it's just a lot of, uh, a lot of moments that take me out of the movie and, and ultimately the question of why was never answered for me. And, and yeah, that just kind of, that's, I guess, yeah, the answer of why was never answered. So I'll just leave it that week, not where a week, not recommend and a medium popcorn. <laughs> I, I will give it a medium popcorn, but I'm going to spring for the extra butter. And which is, I don't know, I guess in between a medium and a large, if you want to, you know, so I, there's not, there's not like a medium for an in-between <laughs> medium and large. A large. So, yeah. yeah. It doesn't work. It doesn't work yeah. as well. Large. Large. <laughs> it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't work as well. Um, a lot of this movie 
worked for me. And I, I knew, I feel like I knew what I was walking into. There were some things I wasn't a fan of. There were a lot of things I did really enjoy. Um, the performances of Maria and Anita probably are, are the high points of this film for me. Um, and that is probably what got the extra butter, but definitely medium popcorn, extra butter. I think I've said my piece on everything else <laughs> over the last couple hours. So I want to say this movie comes from a good place. Like the impetus of, of doing this, it's from a love from childhood and something a man shared with his father that comes from a good place. And the story comes from a good place too. Let's take some really catchy songs and some really attractive people. And let's talk some real hard truth about racism in America and immigration in America. And let's talk about gentrification and some other things. Let's you know, that's the newer you know, lay in with Tony Kushner. And all of that is fine. David Newman directing this score does an incredible job. It sounds awesome. Again, the singing in this movie ranges again from fine Ansel Elgort to really good, you know, with a lot of those. Probably the high point for me, I think Lindsay, you and I shared that the Officer Krupke song is just so much fun. Like I would just yeah. watch just a clip of that and just it's a good smile for seven minutes or whatever. I likened this movie to all of the ingredients from your grandmother's favorite recipe. You can get them all the exact brand, the exact measurement. You might even have her pan to cook the dang thing in. But it's not quite all there because it's not grandma making it, right? That's how I feel about this movie. All the individual pieces in some way or another more or less work. Like I think Ansel Elkhart's a really talented performer. I wasn't lying. That whole Jeff Bridges thing, like if he hangs around and can keep doing, he can have a long career as an actor, probably not as a singer or Broadway performer, but as an actor, I can see it. Rachel Ziegler's a star. I, I'm really interested to see what she does next and does something not this, because that would be sort of fun to look at. And then all these other people, I, I imagine, will have opportunity to do other things, but I imagine they'll make their mint on Broadway like they continually have done, you know, and they're good for them. But all of those pieces, when you put them together, don't necessarily quite gel. It's like, me and my friends in you playing music and stuff growing up, we think about like, what's our dream super band. And now as an adult, I realize like that would never work. Not only because the egos in the room of rock musicians, but just because like it, you can't really put Eddie Van Halen's guitar playing with like, you know, Neil Perch drumming as cool as that might sound. It wouldn't work. And there's just something about all the individual parts here with the architect of it all, Steven Spielberg, where he can't just quite get it to work. I think he did this as a love letter to, again, something he loved and something his dad, you know, really infused into him. And that's great, but it doesn't quite work for me. And there's pieces of it I would want to revisit and go back and think about. But ultimately, if I want to experience West Side Story, I'm going to go with the original score. I'm going to go with the original movie even. Um, before I would ever look at this again. And so I would tell people that are fans of the original that you probably owe it to yourself to see it. Um, just so you can say you've done it and kind of experienced it, but I don't know anybody's ever going to go out of their way to go like, yes, that one. Um, it might be fun in a few years to go back and see what Rachel Ziegler's doing and go like, Oh, remember when she was in that Spielberg musical, like 
travesty because that'll be the footnote of this. It's probably going to win some awards. I have no doubt it's going to get nominated for a lot of them. And maybe it deserves a couple, um, but it's not a great achievement in, in of anything. It's just kind of there. And that is the absolute definition of a medium popcorn. It's all the stuff that could make it work, but it just doesn't quite get over the ledge. It, it uh, doesn't completely fail miserably. So it's fun. It is like, Oh, you could have, you could have been a contender and you weren't because <laughs> you had a lousy left hook and a bad foot and you stepped wrong at the wrong time. And that's, <laughs> that's how, that's really how I feel about the the movie. I mean, honestly, I walked out of it and I was just like, Hmm. I mean, I, it's maybe 15 minutes drive home thinking about it. I walked in and Rachel says, well, I wasn't, I was like, eh, and she said, that kind of says it all. And I said, yeah, that's, I mean, I, I'm not going to change my mind. Um, and I, I wondered, you know, going through this and I'm glad we had this conversation because I think the three of us did see different things at times. And that's always the fun part of doing these kind of things. Um, the, it's funny to me that we arrived at essentially the same end, that it's fine. It's not awful. It's also not transcendent. It's, it's, it's just kind of there. And, you know, um, as to does this ever answer, it's why I agree with you, Mike. No, it does not. Um, but are there some things in it? Yeah, there's a couple of performers that really rise above it. So, yes, Lindsay, I agree you there. Again, I'm kind of in the middle between the both of you here with this one. But um, I just don't think it's all fire. So, yeah, medium popcorn for me. But it's been a lot of fun talking about it with you two for the last couple hours. Thanks to everybody for listening. Mike, tell folks again about how they can follow Amateur Artours and all the cool stuff you've got going on over there and uh, what's on tap for 2022. Yeah, of course. So for 2022, the goal is to do a, one episode every week. Now, that's a pretty lofty goal. I have it planned out, but I, I will, I'll will i be honest. I, I've been known to say things, plan them out, start them, and then not finish through with the podcast. So my goal is to you know stick through that, do it. I th- feel like by talking about it enough, it'll like help me actualize and do it. So um. Yeah, so that's that's the goal for 2022 is uh, you know one one episode a week uh, talking about whether a full feature length film by myself Brian with guests of course um, or like a short film I know we talked about Alter uh, the YouTube channel um, on a, I guess the episode with us Jay from two weeks ago for me mm-hmm. and um, so yeah and hopefully I can get some D and D stuff out for you guys that one I can't guarantee but there will be movie stuff. Um, so you can follow us on Twitter at AltoursPod. Uh, you can also follow the show on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm sure there's something else in there, but I'll figure that out for 2022. And uh, you can also email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at theamateuraltoursepodcast at gmail.com. And that's all where we are, Jay. Thanks for letting me uh, shout out the show. Absolutely. All that is in the description of the show as well, folks. And you can follow the show's social media at Filmstrip Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, look for Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook. You'll find announcements about upcoming shows and a link to our letterbox page, which has the entire list of all of our reviews. They're not in written form, but it'll let you know like where an episode is. So if you're hunting an episode and you don't want to search through your podcatcher, look there. Uh, or if you want to do like most of the hosts on this show when we're trying to figure out what we're doing next, it's like, have we done that one yet? So just go search the letterbox page and uh, it is all there. Go Go to filmstrippodcast.com. That'll link you to all the places you can find the podcast, Apple, Google, Spotify. We're all there. Please share and rate the show and leave positive reviews as you can. We had a new positive review just out of the blue in the fall of, of 2021. And it just made me smile real big. I don't know who you are, anonymous person, but you just said, I just discovered this and I've been binging all of these. And that just warms my heart because there's 300 plus episodes there. There's something for everybody, I promise you. Uh, but we appreciate that. So uh, share the show on your socials as well. Helps other people find the podcast. We appreciate 
appreciate your support. So for Mike from Amateur Tours and for Lindsay, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.